Uh, we, this is, this is now number five. That's the fifth lesson in our uh, study on law. We had three prefatory lessons, and then last week, Connor Aubrey had done a lesson on the First Commandment, so I'm looking at the Second Commandment. There are resources on the, uh, in your handout there. I could have chosen many other resources. There are a lot of great resources. You notice the very last one is from our own uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Joshua Owen preached uh, this sermon uh, on the Second Commandment was in the morning and in the evening of that day I was installed and ordained as associate five years ago. Um, so I, I, that's why I remember that it's been years since we as a church have actually covered the topic of the law. I thought it would be good for us to do that. <clears throat> so the other good resources there available to you. Um, and the Westminster Larger Catechism, as I've mentioned before, it has, and Aubrey, Connor, Aubrey had uh, gone through some of them last week on the First Commandment. Every single commandment has its own section of the, of the catechism. Worth study, worth prayerful meditation, is much about what the command forbids and what the command requires. It's well worth the time of, uh, of study. So that would be larger catechism 107 through 110, if you needed the reference for, for that. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer, and then we'll have some review. Our glorious, majestic God, come before you, do so humbly and thankfully. We acknowledge that you are our God, that you alone are God. And it is our desire to worship you as you have prescribed for us, not as we have imagined you to be worshipped. And Lord, every one of us fails in, in this respect. Not one of us worships you perfectly. Every one of us needs our thoughts to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ, to the inspiration here of your word. And so we do pray that you would lead us as we contemplate this second commandment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, the, just a review here, what is the first commandment? It's the first commandment. I shall have no other gods before me. Okay, no other gods before me. And what, uh, is that primarily in terms of priority? We should have no other gods that we prioritize over the triune God? Is that? No, there is none. Zero. Okay, so it's, it's not it's, just... It is an absolute. Okay, it's an absolute statement, no gods other than the triune God, because there are no other gods. Correct. Okay, so it's not just that we are prioritizing the triune God over the other lesser gods. Mm -mm, can't do that. But also, uh, the, the sides are before me was uh, in God's presence. Okay? So you shall know other gods in my presence. And when you understand that God is omnipresent, you know that there's no room for any other god. Okay. 
Gordon Ketty, in his book on, um, which I've referenced there, it's ten words on the Decalogue, he says, while the first commandment opposes foreign gods, the second opposes self-willed worship of Yahweh. The second opposes self-willed worship of Yahweh. And, and I've, I've heard one man say that this second commandment is uh, like the sola, uh, the, the, the sola scriptura applied to the area of worship. It's one way that we can understand the second commandment is that wonderful solo that, that we love applied to worship. It's we are to be we are to eschew avoid any kind of self-willed worship, but always lean on how God has prescribed uh, how He is to be worshipped, and of course He prescribes that through His Word. Providentially, the next two Sundays we will have in Judges two illustrations of self-willed worship. Not today, but the following two. With Micah and the Levite. And then with the Danites and the Levite. It's personal to tribal. And both of these, well, all the groups involved really are thinking that it is, uh, they know what's best as far as how God is to be worshipped. Well, <clears throat> uh, Brian Cosby in his article, Again, in the resources, says he highlights the problem, that, the second commandment problem that we have in our presbyteries. So you guys know that presbytery is the, the region, the regional church, okay? And it doesn't really matter what presbytery you go to, you will, uh, you will experience this, I'm sure. Cosby is speaking probably representatively of so many presbyteries, if not all of them. He says, I've noticed an increasing number of candidates taking an exception to the Westminster Standards interpretation of this particular commandment. So, <clears throat> uh, Larger Catechism 109 is among the 107.110 that talks about the second commandment. There are, if there are to be three exceptions that a, that a candidate for the gospel ministry will take, going to be on the fourth commandment, uh, his view of, the, of recreation, Sabbath, we'll get there in a couple weeks, and it will likely be on creation, uh, having a different view from the 24-hour, um, six days creation, seventh-day rest, and then the third exception that the person will note will be uh, most likely 109, uh, the images of Jesus, okay? In fact, when a candidate comes to be examined and he doesn't have any exceptions, he's looked upon with suspicion. Are you sure you don't have any exceptions? And really testing the person's fidelity to the confession and the catechisms. That bothers me. And it bothers those who don't have exceptions. Hey, hey, okay, some people do have exceptions to this confession and catechisms. But if you don't, why are you gonna think? Why are you gonna look upon us like that's a bad thing? Okay, we do vow that the Westminster Confession of Faith, large and short catechisms, summarize the Christian faith. And um, larger catechism one and I has some good things to say about images. Now, this command is not all about images, but that's because that's the um, 
thing that probably most of us have questions about. We're going to talk about that. And so if the candidates for the gospel ministry are taking an exception to this larger catechism 109, to this commandment, then I imagine many of many the people are as well. At least they're confused. And so the first point here is just say no to images. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6 read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. By the way, if you just look at Exodus 20 and the various commands, you'll see that this second commandment and the fourth commandment have the, are, are the lengthier versions. They're longer than the other commands. So, uh, we remember the motive for all of these commandments. Okay? The motive is to be more like Christ. We are not approaching any of these commands as a way by which to be justified. We've already been justified. We're not looking at these commandments as a way by which to be saved. The preface of the Ten Commandments is, you have been redeemed. You are a redeemed people. You have been brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the hand, out of the house of slavery. You are no longer enslaved. So now you're free. Free what? To follow the Lord. You're free to be more like the Lord, because that is the desire of every single follower of Christ. I want to be more like Jesus. So that's the motive. Move to be more like Christ. We say no to what is pretend. We say no to what is incomplete. So, does Christ keep the second commandment? Of course. So, does Christ worship? Yes. Yes. Whom does Christ worship? The Father. Yes. And he would be sinful not to worship the Father. Because the Father is God. We are to worship God. God alone. So, we want to be more like Christ. And so we say no to Images. We say no to what is pretend. We say no to what is incomplete. Well, what images? Images of the divine. Images of the creation as if it were the divine. Now notice this command does not forbid other images or art in Christian life. There's wonderful Christian media. There's wonderful Christian art. D. Young in his book on the Ten Commandments, which I believe as a covenant group we did like a couple years ago. Remember that green book? Yeah. He says, God is not against beauty. What he prohibits is infusing any object with spiritual efficacy, as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. So, he makes that qualification. God doesn't hate beauty. He is a beautiful God. He loves beauty. And all beauty, if it is to be acknowledged, it's coming from God, Right? Any, any, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And beauty is one of those gifts. But what he is against, as De Young says, is infusing any object with the spiritual efficacy. It represents God. It's, it's a way by which we become closer to God. We have communion with God. A man-made artifact. Okay? Not a Christ-instituted sacrament like we have 
to look at in a little bit. So what examples might come to your mind when you hear that quote from De Young about objects, man-made artifacts that can bring us closer to God, represent God, establish communion with God? Anything comes to mind? Well, like you asked, for me, there's a, when I was little, because I, I wasn't brought up in the church, I only had very sporadic um, and haphazard connect contacts with the church. One time in a little craft group in a, at a convent where I happened to go with a friend after school, we made little we made little easels, and on the easels we taped photograph of a beautiful painting of Jesus. You probably know which one it is. He has the easy profile looking very serene. That painting for me as a little child, as a 10 or 11, 12 year old, that was like a one spot of safety in a very turbulent, scary world that I had. On the other hand, I watched my son walk into a side chapel in a convent in Carmel when he was 18 and look at the life-size doll dressed up in finery that was representing the Virgin Mary just when we had been really trying to disciple him. And he said, yeah, so they come into the chapel and they bow down to the doll? <laughs> so I can see both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, I wasn't always Presbyterian. And the, and I, uh, I I don't, I'm not saying that I the Mock family uh, perfectly ever obeyed this commandment. Not one of us has perfectly obeyed this commandment. Uh, and I remember talking to my my grandma uh, about just the, the just Jesus and just Jesus. That sounded odd. <laughs> talking with her about Jesus, and she was telling me that. Very few passages of scripture talk about Jesus laughing or being joyful. And I didn't know whether that was true or not, but she sent me a photo uh, of Jesus laughing. And the image is still in my head. We eventually got rid of the image. Um, but you know what image I'm talking about, yeah. And when I remember looking at it, yeah, Jesus, he's joyful. It's true. Um, any other examples come to mind? You. Um, well, a big one for me is for the 12 years I had my own bedroom, there was a big, massive picture of Jesus walking on the water, on the wall. Because it was my dad's picture of my used to be his study. And when I moved in there at 13, he was like, do you want to keep this here? And I'm like, sure. So there's a big, massive picture of Jesus walking on the water. Probably two feet by two feet. And he loved it, right? Yes. I, I honestly loved looking at it, both because I didn't want to venerate an image. Whenever I prayed, I made sure I was facing away from it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important, too. So this is kind of a fairly nuanced uh, thing I think we're discussing here. Uh, and I, I would like to dive a little bit more, I mean, maybe not. Today, but spiritual efficacy, that there is a true sense in which beauty draws us to beauty. So, you know, recently I just made a, a bed, an oak bed for Abigail. And as I'm crafting the wood and staining it and putting the poly on it, I'm like, this is, 
incredibly beautiful. Uh, now when I look at the bed, I, it reminds me of God's beauty. And that can be a painting, that can be so many things. So when it draws us to the Lord, um, if it's, and I want to be careful using this language, but a means to draw us to the Lord, yes. Yeah, I'm not looking at the bed like, oh man, you know, worship the bed in any way spiritually. <laughs> Uh, but beauty does draw us to beauty, and I think that's the whole of God's creation uh, as well. So, um, you know, Romans one and two speaks to that. I mean, his yeah, he's known through his creation sure. as well. So. Yep. So Gerhardus Voss says uh, he, he reminds us that not all images are on the same level as one another. He says, of course, there is a difference between using pictures of Jesus to illustrate children's Bible storybooks or lessons, and using pictures of Jesus in worship as Roman Catholics use them. He's not saying that the former are actually to be approved. He is just saying that there is a difference between the two kinds of things. They're not uh, both doing the same thing, per se. So a motion picture, a movie, uh, a TV show differs from, say, a carved wooden baby Jesus in a nativity scene. But all man-made images of the divine persons are to be avoided. All man-made images of the divine persons are to be avoided. I didn't get permission from this parent to, il to illustrate this uh, by name, so I'll just speak about it and use the uh, gender plural uh, term. Not create a new gender, but speaking generally of this individual. And so I had... Uh, been preaching through Judges, as you guys know, and started the, the story with uh, Mr. with with, um, uh, with Manoah, and you remember that story with Manoah coming and to, uh, or the angel of the Lord coming to Manoah, and some of our covenant children love to draw, uh, and they draw their notes, right? And it's, well, I don't do that. It's a good, it's a good way of being attentive. And as this person was, was drawing the scene, they were being, they're listening and they realized that the angel of the Lord is actually the second person of the Trinity. the Son of God. So as they were drawing, and, and here, wait a minute, the angel of the Lord is, is God himself. I'm drawing God. And so they uh, scribbled out and, and, and had some objection to it. And that tells me that this person is sensitive to the, the second commandment, uh, and that this family is committed to, to that kind of thing as well, uh, the second commandment, and you know, avoiding man-made image of the divine person. Was, I think that's commendable. It was the same child who also, several years ago, asked me, is it okay if I draw a picture of pregnant Mary? Because technically Jesus is still in the picture. <laughs> 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 well, I wasn't going to say who it was. Excuse me, are crushes not PCA? You can't have a nativity scene at Christmas? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you're going to find a divergence of views in the PCA as you would in many, uh, many denominations. Yeah. Now, I think a live nativity scene would be different from uh, one that has 
statues in front of the church. You know, some do live and some don't. They do do a nativity scene. Some leave the carry the lamp feet. Yep. Just... Mm-hmm. They do. And some fill it. <laughs> yeah. So why would we say no to images? Okay. And you know, is God just being legalistic here? Well, no. God's not being legalistic. Okay. He's not a legalist. A few reasons. One is man's creation. We know in Genesis 1, 26 to 27 that we are image bearers. Kevin DeYoung says, we don't need to create images of God because he has already created them. And what he has in mind are you and me. We are the Imago Dei. We are images. We are bearing the image of God. We are the um, divine statues, if you will, that are to image God to everyone. In fact, everything we do, whether good or bad, is telling something about the divine. And uh, <clears throat> the, marriage, the, the marriage example is, is the perfect one. Everything that a husband does towards his wife is imaging what the Christ does in church, either poorly or well. So if the husband is um, giving his life for his wife, then... He is imaging well, at a human level, of course, what Christ does for the church. And if the husband is mistreating his wife, what he's doing is he's giving a bad picture. He is saying that this is how Christ treats the church. Okay. Man's imagination is another example, another reason why we would avoid imaging God. Now, Acts 17. This is Paul... And the Areopagus, I'm going to read 24 through 29. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their, way, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is not one to be formed by the art and imagination of man. It is not up to us to image him in ways that we think would be helpful or um, representative of the truth. God does not want us to follow our hearts in this respect. Okay? To say no to images of the divine is to say no to idolatry. As we went through in men's Bible study, the very end of First John is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And in none of First uh, John, you hear language of idolatry. But you have, over and over again, how we are to understand Jesus the Christ. How we are to understand God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. 
But as Calvin has uh, said, and he's been quoted many times, our hearts are idol factories. The second commandment really is a commandment to say no to idolatry and say yes to uh, how God has prescribed himself to worship. Again, uh, Gerhard of says, false worship means not only worshiping a false god or practicing the rites of a false religion, but attempting to worship the true God in any other manner than that appointed in his word, the Holy Bible. What would you say that the church would be more guilty of? False, false worship, practicing the rites of a false religion, or attempting to worship the true God in any other manner than the one appointed in his word. The latter. The latter. None of us, as far as I know, is, is setting up an altar to Dagon. <laughs> right? Okay, we're not, thankfully, we're not sacrificing children to Moloch. We're not doing that. We eschew those false gods. But not one of us worships the true God perfectly. We always need to be uh, corrected on how to view God better and how to worship him better. And notice what God, he gives a reason. He says in, in chapter 20, verse, Exodus 20, verse um, six, six, no, it's five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God. So if, if he is jealous, then on the one hand, we, we should say that not all jealousy is wrong. Okay, that's, a, that's another subject. But that's the reason. I'm a jealous God. What's the connection between divine jealousy then and the second commandment? Why would we avoid making an image of, of the Lord based on his divine jealousy? Because eventually you will be coming to worship the creation of your hands and not God. Your, your heart will be towards this piece of wood or stone or gold or whatever it is yeah. that you've created, you created, even though the original intent centuries before would have been to honor God. But then, it's kind of how the uh, you can see what actually happened in the in Jerusalem, right? Everybody became jealous of the center of the religion, was Jerusalem, and uh, they all wanted their God to worship at their place. You know, what God is saying. I am with you everywhere, all the time. You don't need this thing to worship me. So if you create this thing, it creates a dichotomy between you and God because you're starting to worship. You're turning towards this thing instead of towards God. What does Aaron do right after, or while Moses is getting the Ten Commandments? Well, it just sprang out of the fire. It just sprang up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got some stuff and just up came this golden calf. So as the people of God are, as Moses is, is, 
receiving a word from the Lord, these idolatrous hearts just, just, just can't stop but be idolatrous. There has to be something, someone, other than the one who just rescued us, that we say is in part is helping this redemption, helping along with this redemption. We it's not just it's not the Lord is not sufficient, really. It's the Lord plus. Well, how do you also represent a God? <clears throat> I think C.S. Lewis struggled with that in, in many of his writings because he's in the great divorce. Helpers come to these people that these people know, right, and help them to give up the things that are holding them back from going to God. God is pictured as in the mountains, in the high place, that's where he resides. And the helpers are to help the people go there. So you never get a vision of what of God. In the trilogy, people, he never really adequately, adequately he never describes the Spirits that come to uh, ransom, etc., to until he gets to at the very end in the parallel. That he is strength, where he tries to describe, or he, he the, the the creatures actually try to present themselves to ransom in a form that he would recognize. And eventually, it, you know, he says, "I can't, I can't, I can't comprehend this. These forms until they focus, they they finalize themselves as a an outline shape of a man, human form okay, of, of light." You know, so I think he's you're trying to what you're, what you're saying is, here's a calf. Well, a calf, you know, there's cows all around you, right? There are stone creatures all over, there are stones yep. all around you, there are birds, there are fish, there's fire, there's all these physical elements. Mm -hmm. God is not a physical element. He assumed yep. that of a man. He has a spirit, true form, a spirit. Yep. How do you how do you symbolize that spirit? That's why Christ came as a propitiation, so that we can, you can, as a, as a, in human form, born as a man, died as a man, and was resurrected in His holiness to be at one, at one with the Father. The Holy Spirit is here all the time with us, every second of our lives. So how can you how can you picture that? And that's you saying, don't attempt it. That's my interpretation. What was your, sorry, I thought of something that tied to your original question. So the question was, uh, basically, what's the connection between the rationale, divine jealousy, and then yeah. idolatry? So I think one uh, thing that, so last week we talked about creator-creature distinction, which I think is helpful here. Uh, all things that we know in visible, tangible way are part of the creation. So that line that distinguishes that. But I also think it, it gets at love too. So you know that's part of the 
the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <clears throat> so it's just like if, you know, maybe a human example. So I, I love Katie very deeply. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm not going to walk into her closet and be like, oh, these clothes. I love these clothes so much. Or I love what, you know, she has made. If I enjoy something that she has made or what she wears, it's because I love her, not objects that she uses or that, you know, those sorts of things. So when we think about it in terms of love, it's a very simple way to, to think about it. But, um, I think maybe that helps get at the idea. That's why God is jealous. He wants our love. He wants us. And our love is to be directed solely at him, not at what he has made. Even though beauty does point us to him, we're not, you know, this bed, you know, these paintings right. are not God. So hopefully that helps yep. yeah, connect some of those. Because only God is to receive what God is to receive. If Keith came home one day and said, you know, the reason I'm late all the time is that there's a just a lovely woman at work whom I love to hang out with because she reminds me so much of you. <laughs> that would not console me at all. <laughs> yeah, and actually, the, the, the Bible connects idolatry and adultery all the time. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Yes. I think also um, the like uh, Ben was talking about the, the grounding of love for the commandments. God is jealous of true worship because He knows that that is what is best for us. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I can be said, I, I can say that I am jealous for my children's safety. So that if I see them doing something unsafe and I stop them, that's not uh, solely uh, motivated by anger or mm-hmm. whatever. It's because I'm jealous for their safety. God is jealous of true worship because He loves us and He wants us. He wants what's best for us, which means true worship. Right. The chief end of man is to glorify God, enjoy Him forever. So, uh, ontology is just a, a fancy word, which means anyone know? Yes. Uh, the being. Yeah, being. So, another reason why we say no to images of the divine is that God is ontologically other than the creation. He is different from the creation. Voss again says, because God is pure spirit, without bodily form, and any picture or representation which man can make can only give a false idea of the nature of God. This is true regardless of whether an outward image or likeness is made, or only an inward image in a person's mind. And Gordon Ketty says, Images are easier to handle than the deep truth of God's character, and small enough, sometimes literally, to put in our pocket. If we can contain God in an image, then we can control him. At least we think we could. So, yep, that encapsulates the divine. Nothing encapsulates the divine. He is infinite. Beakey quotes Thomas Watson, a Puritan. Puritans are excellent with images and analogies. He says, If an artist made an image of a king in the shape of an insect, he would be very offended. 
Likewise, it dishonors the living God to try to represent him with a dead image and the creator of all things with an image created by man. Oh, that's good. That's why I quoted it. <laughs> In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and 2 Peter 1, 3, we are reminded that God's word is sufficient. If you want to be taught of God, if you want to be rebuked by the Lord, corrected by the Lord, and you want to be trained in righteousness by the Lord, well, he has given you a one-stop shop in the scripture. He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Peter 1 3 says. Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And how do we know Jesus Christ? Through his word. All man made images of the divine are not God's vehicles of revelation. God has not revealed himself specially in the creation, he has given us his inspired word. That is what we go to. That is what is sufficient. That's not to say that he has not revealed himself generally in general revelation. We, we talked about that before. And so everything uh, in creation is uh, a gift from God and tells us something of the nature of God. But it was never to be complete. General, general revelation takes us only so far. We have special revelation, and that's in the scripture. We don't have um, other expressions of special revelation like, say, um, they did in Days of the Prophets or Days of Jesus. We have, actually, a more sure word, as Peter tells us. We have the word of God. And uh, I'll get to this in, in just a moment, but uh, the other reason that I, I have here is God's means of grace. We have God's means of grace. I think we know what those means are, but word, sacraments, and prayer, if you, if you don't know. So what about Christ? Since Jesus, here's, here's a, a question that I've asked myself you know, many times, that's asked pretty much whenever we come to the second commandment. Since Jesus is the God-man, can't we just visualize the man part? And that question itself is problematic. Visualize the man part. Jesus is not part God and part man. He's not a, a demigod. 
right? He's not 50% God, 50% man. Bring those together, and you have the God-man. He is truly, fully God. He is truly, fully man, human. And our catechism reminds us that it is forbidden to make an image of any of the three persons of the Trinity. And the Son of God is a person of the Trinity. The Christ is a divine person with a human nature, not a human person. Okay? He is a divine person who assumed humanity. He wasn't an eternally human person that then God incarnated. He is always, he has never stopped being a divine person. He took on a human nature. He still has that human nature. He will always have that human nature. From the incarnation and then the resurrection, his glorification, he is truly God, truly man. He didn't take, he didn't shell that body. He took on a resurrected body. And that is what he is. He is God, man, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And how he is, where he is, you know, in his bodily form, is a mystery. Okay. It's hard to think of an enfleshed, glorified, enfleshed individual in heavens. Because when we think of the heavens, we think of um, spiritual realm, we don't think of things like this. You know, he's not, is Jesus sitting on a chair? Yeah. In fact, he's the only one with a resurrected body. He has the first fruits. We all await that resurrected body. And we will get that when he comes back. So Christ is a divine person with a human nature. Also, there is no physical description of the man, Jesus Christ. The apostles and those, the disciples who walked with him for those, you know, those years, they knew. They could have written, they could have, they could have drawn a picture. Maybe some of them were artists. They could have drawn a beautiful portrait of Jesus. They could have even laid out a, a, a very specific description so that we could then have that description in our minds of this is exactly what Jesus looked like. But, as Marika was saying, uh, even if we were given that, that wouldn't represent him as he fully is. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If we don't regard Christ in the flesh any longer, then how do we regard him? We regard him, as Paul goes on, as the man of glory, the man of heaven. The disciples were not interested in giving us a physical description of the man, of the divine, of the God-man. But then again, there's another question. Can't these images help us? And this was a question that you know, I've struggled with over the years. Kevin White, in his article, it's in the resource uh, mentioned there, he says, the mere natural sight of Jesus, however dear and beloved, did not bring the grace of faith during his days on earth. So why do we seek instruction or edification through images made centuries later? Mere reflections, however true or faithful, 
cannot produce a more significant effect than the original. Take all of our Christmas cards, shows, and movies are great works of art. At their best, they can only give us a second-hand approximation of what was secondary to the Apostles' faith. A second-hand approximation of what was secondary to the Apostles' faith. But even our Hallmark cards, Kevin, we have to take those away too? <laughs> that Hallmark card doesn't best reflect the God-man? Guess not. Well, if we're taking out all these Christmas cards, shows, movies, etc., if we're taking the great works of art, then what do we have? What do we have left? We have the Bible. <laughs> the Bible? Yes. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. <laughs> okay. Over and over again, throughout God's word, God is saying, listen to my word. Hear my word. My word is sufficient. Faith in the God who has spoken. Beaky says, the claim that images help us to think of Christ creates a moral dilemma. So here's the dilemma. Either people think of Christ without worshiping him, which dishonors God's Son, or they worship the Lord through an image, which is idolatry. So that's the dilemma. Either, worship, either people think of Christ without worshiping him, there's an image, think about Jesus, we don't worship him, that song is God's son, or you worship the Lord through that image, through that painting or whatever. A vehicle. You are imbuing, you're infusing, as Young says, you're infusing a spiritual efficacy through that, uh, into that image, when again God has given us his word. And so saying no isn't actually a bad thing, because when we say no to something, we are saying yes to something else. We're saying yes to the image. We are moved to be more like Christ. We say yes to the real. If we say no to what is pretend, we say no to what is incomplete, we say no to what is partial, we say yes to the real. Daniel Hyde, in his book, In Living Color, which is 200 pages just on the Second Commandment, and by the way, he, he tells us that, he reminds us that all of the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms are on the same page here. Okay? He says, he summarizes John Owen. And we love John Owen. He says, images were introduced because the people of God lost their experience with Christ in the preaching of the gospel. Now, of course, that's not the case for everyone, but that's how John Owen had seen the matter. Images were introduced because the preaching of the gospel was minimized. They didn't see Christ enough in the scriptures, so they went to something else. Well, you think that for a long time, the gospel was preached in a language people didn't even understand. Yeah. They, I guess the rationale for the stained glass windows in the cathedrals was to teach the people what the priests weren't teaching them. Yes. And then this, what you said, reminds me of the confession in chapter 1 talks about the necessity of translation. The Great Commission. And the book of Acts. It's all about getting the gospel in the language of the people. It's why the tongues were there. Here, have the gospel 
in your tongue. Know it. So we have the preaching of the word. Uh, we also have the image seen. Uh, we see it in baptism. How does baptism, as a, as a sacrament of the Lord, it's Christ instituted, how does baptism image the gospel or image Christ's work? Washing the water of the word. Yes. I don't know if it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, but I gave um, several images. Uh, I said that the scripture points to uses several images to speak of of God's word. We would do well to avail ourselves of those images, like blood and water and the tree of life and uh, the rainbow. And God has given us so many things in creation, to help us understand him. But Christ, in the New Covenant, has given us two sacraments to image um, God's work the best. That's baptism, and that's the Lord's Supper. So what does the Lord's Supper do to, uh, to image God's work? Is that bread, Jesus? No. But some would say it is. In fact, they used to say it was. Some still do say Right? That's, that's the Roman Catholic Mass right there. It's... It, the bread formerly wasn't Christ, but then it became Christ. And the wine... <clears throat> Formerly it wasn't the blood of Christ, but then it becomes the blood of Christ. So you can see then how the Reformers objected to the Mass on a variety of levels for a number of reasons, one of which would be it's idolatry. You've just broken the Second Commandment in this divinely instituted sacrament. It's a big deal. Kevin White says, Why settle? for the imaginations of men, when in so little time we will, see, we will see the real thing. So what is he calling us to? Faith. By faith, we taste and see that the Lord is good. By faith, we, we know God, truly. John 20, verse 29. This is Jesus and Thomas. Okay, this is a very familiar text. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This side of heaven, we live not by sight, but by faith. And it's not just, okay, we're going to carry on just upset that we can't image the sun. It's, we're blessed. 
This is a pronouncement of God's blessing on us who have faith in the Lord, who want to worship God as he has prescribed in Scripture. And Kevin DeYoung, I'll give him the last word, uh, but I will, uh, he references Colossians 1.15. So I'll go there, read that, and then I'll give him the last word, at least as far as the lesson is concerned. You can ask a question after it. Uh, <clears throat> Colossians 1.15. He, it's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So that image, the word image there, is the Greek word icon. Yeah. Our English word icon. Okay. That's going to make sense. You need that background for this quote to make sense. We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And how do we have it? Really, this is... I guess I said I was going to give Kevin DeYoung the last word, but I guess I'm taking it. <laughs> we have his word. If there's, there's one thing that I try to emphasize over and over again is the sufficiency, the beauty, the finality, the necessity, the authority of the word of God. This is where we have our, our hope. We trust in the, the God who has spoken. We don't trust in our own imagination. We don't trust in what other people say. That's shifting sand. We trust on the solid rock, which is Christ. And thanks be to him, he has spoken to us. And he's not left us flying blind on how we are to follow him. And I know that this is uh, a difficult command because there's still nuts and bolts that and you looked at, and what about this? Uh, what about this picture? What about that movie? Uh, what about that mental image? Again, not one of us has arrived here. And you wouldn't want to bind another person's conscience. You can simply point to them, point them to Scripture. And all the while, we must always be patient with one another. Because not one of us has fully arrived. So every one of us wants to, give everyone the benefit of the doubt, we all want to uh, worship God better. And we, will, we all want to follow Jesus more faithfully. And we can stir one another up to love and good deeds, as the Bible tells us to do, rather than coming down hard on people. Is that a nativity scene I saw in your, <laughs> your house? And maybe it's a wall size of Jesus on a cross. Okay, might have some words with the brother. Uh, we, can, we can talk reasonably with one another. We can go to the Word of God, which is sufficient. And in many of our cases, we might just not say anything. Just, we'll just let the Lord deal with them as He's dealing with us. Not everyone brings everything that they are concerned about with us to our attention. We all trust the Lord's ongoing work, right? I just think about how God has um, just been faithful to... He's just been patient with me and my family as we try to be more like Jesus. Um, and we've not arrived. 
still much more work to be done on every one of these Ten Commandments. It's just another testimony of, of God's grace, His long-suffering, His love for us, and His unceasing commitment to His people. Yeah. I have 10.28, probably and a half, so if there's 30, 60 seconds of question or comment, we can give you the last word, if you want it. I was thinking of how much easier it is to, to clasp your middle and pray to St. Christopher, say, than to actually address God in, in all of his majesty and all of his uh, demand, demands upon us. When you, when you address God, the first thing you feel, I mean, I feel, is my utter unworthiness to address God. Yes. But I can talk to the Virgin Mary and St. Christopher all day because they're just, you know, Good guys, good people. Like, you know, they're not holy, holy, yeah. holy. Yeah. That's actually why, um, in Roman Catholic theology, Mary is uh, introduced as co-mediatrix. Mediatrix, just the feminine version of mediator, because God is too holy. You. you you need Jesus, but Mary gave birth to Jesus. You, you got to have more mediators. But God has already given us the one final mediator. So we can come boldly forth the throne of grace, acknowledging our own unworthiness, but then thanking God for his immense grace that's poured out into us. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you love us. We are unworthy of your love. We do not deserve a shred of your grace. And you've given us more than a shred. You overwhelm us with your love, with your kindness and patience, your joy. We're so thankful. Help us, Lord, to, to worship you more truly, in spirit and truth. Because it is our desire to be more like you and to worship you as you have commanded. Because it is for your glory and for our best to worship you truly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.